Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. All right, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. My name is George Dvorsky, and I'll be your host for about the next hour or so as we cover such topics as science, technology, futurism, and transhumanism. I'm a blogger at sentientdevelopments.com and the chair of the Institute for the Ethics and Emerging Technologies. For today's episode, I'm going to bring you up to speed on all the happenings in my life, and in particular, the guest blogging I did over at Not io 9 last week. Also going to bring you up to speed on the uh, course I'm currently conducting at the Center for Free Inquiry. Uh, it's an introductory course to transhumanism. And in terms of the various segments today, I'm going to describe why it is in the Game of Thrones their seasons are so messed up and what could possibly explain it from a scientific perspective. Then I will address the issue of uh, psychopharmaceuticals and asking the question, could a single pill save your marriage? Then we will discuss how Nature, the journal Nature, has went ahead and published the study explaining how to create a deadly mutant bird flu. Then looking into artificial retinas and how they're giving blind patients the ability to see light and shapes, and we'll end it all off looking at the European Space Agency's latest project, which is to send a probe out to Jupiter to study and assess the viability of life on their icy moons. Okay. Deep breath. Back after a few weeks off, what, three weeks off or so, I figure? Very, very busy, and most... um, prominently working on what is a job opportunity with io9 and i don't think i've kind of stated this um previous but the um the guest blogging that you would have seen me done last week was in fact not so much that i was invited as a guest which i was but it was really more of a trial run to see um what kind of a fit it would be you know uh, they could see my writing and what i'm capable of doing and similarly i could see what the experience would be like and what the workload is like working for io9 for those of you who are not familiar with io9, it's a very popular webzine and it uh, it's almost primarily um, deals with kind of culture and science fiction, but there's also a definite focus on science and futurism. And in fact, their tagline is, we come from the future. What I would say, though, is that their fan base or their audience is almost exclusively composed of science fiction and uh, fantasy uh, aficionados. Um, that's probably, I hope that's not a gross generalization, as I'm sure there's you know general interest, uh, you know people coming there as well. Obviously, those people that are interested in science and so on. So, in terms of looking for a job, they posted an opening about four weeks ago or so now, and they're looking for a science and culture writer. So I cl- applied for it almost immediately. I also have um I've at once I've had the odd conversation with Annalie Newitz, the editor in chief there. And, uh, so she knew who I was and she, uh, took a look at my resume. We, we had an interview and, um, this has been, uh, it's been a process and I think everybody wants to make sure that it's going to be, like I said, a right fit. And, uh, last week was probably the biggest step in the process, which was having me write for four days, Monday through Thursday of last week. And it was tough work. I will tell you, 
and uh, but it was nothing that I couldn't handle. And basically, you know, you wake up in the morning, and the editor and the editor has given you a list of what your requirements are for the day, and as per a certain schedule. And last week, it was uh, Charlie Jane Anders was the one who was putting out the um, the itinerary, if you will. So, for example, a typical day for me would have been, uh, let's say, by ten twenty, I had to have a science article up. Then an hour later, another science article up. Then I had to put up what's called a splash article. And a splash article is the one article that you need to write every day that's going to draw attention and be popular. And it also requires you to do some original writing and, and reporting. Whereas the other articles can be kind of relatively quick, anywhere from about 20 to 30 minutes to prepare through to about an hour and a half to prepare. They can be simple callbacks to other other blogs or other articles and so on. But the one splash article, that's clearly the one's going to take approximately about half a day to write. And needs to be needs to be the one that's going to make an impact, as they're going to f- feature it on the front page quite prominently. So the days were long, and uh, worked my tail off to get you know what was really five articles per day. So I wrote twenty articles in twenty days, and because I wanted to make a good impression, I uh, went beyond the call of duty, and I kind of really did about two splash articles a day. And uh, now, um, now the waiting game begins. As uh, I'm not sure what the situation is, if there's a, other candidates that I'm competing against, which I'm sure there are, and everybody obviously deserves an opportunity to show what they're capable of. And at this point, I've really done all that I can do. Um, I, I wouldn't have changed anything last week, and uh, quite proud of what I put out there. Did not embarrass myself, and I think that that would be an interesting direction for me in terms of my career, which would be, um, you know, qu- quite literally. Uh, being a you know a professional writer writing about science and culture and futurism, and to actually get paid for it, kind of crazy, eh? And that in so many respects, this would be an ideal job for me. I can work from home, and the hours are reasonably flexible, seeing as I'm working according to Pacific time zone. I'm I'm living in Eastern time zone, so I kind of have a broadened um, stretch of time over the course of the day. <clears throat> so. Everyone, uh, cross their fingers for me. I really do want this gig, and uh, hopefully by next week or in the next couple of weeks, I'll have an, an update for you in regards to the I-09 opportunity. I am also, this month, uh, conducting a course for the Center for Free Inquiry. It's an introduction to transhumanism, and it's online. It's probably too late to sign up at this point, I'm afraid. So, um, I'm, But I do know that many of um, my podcast listeners are in the class itself, so hey, a shout out to all you guys. And I hope you're enjoying it. And it has been a good start. And uh, I ha- I've got a, a good-sized class in there. And how I've broken it up is that the, the first week we had an overview uh, and a history of transhumanism. So we looked at the meaning of the term transhumanism, uh, transhumanist core values, the history of uh, human enhancement, looking at the various political and social underpinnings of transhumanism. We also looked at the critics of transhumanism, so like Fukuyama and those sorts of things and uh, kind of getting a sense of what uh, transhumanism uh, means today. This week, we're looking at the technologies of transhumanism. So this section, we're going to provide an overview of those technologies that will be used to transform the human condition, uh, in uh, specifically cybernetics, genomics, neuropharmacology, nanotechnology, information technology, uh, the cognitive sciences, and I'm also going to throw in some cryonics as well. you got to talk about cryonics. Next week, we're going to look at transhumanist visions. So we're going to look at radical life extension, uh, morphological, cognitive, and moral enhancement, cyberization, mind uploading, Dysonian existence, interstellar exploration, and of course, the technological singularity. And on the last week, week four, we're going to get into some ethics and bioethics, and we're going to consider various problems posed by human enhancement, including issues of accessibility, social justice, 
overpopulation, the rise of dominant individuals and groups, discrimination, and the potential risks of tampering with human nature. And so there you have it. Uh, that is the course that I'm conducting online. And if you didn't make it this time, then I can probably make, and you'd like to, uh, I could probably, probably make a case with the, the Center for Free Inquiry to run this course again, perhaps in, in, in several months. Should we do that? I will obviously let you know right here on the podcast. Now let's take a musical break and get into the segments. And the next article that I'm going to, uh, to um, talk to you about was one that I did produce for io9, a good mashup, a cultural mashup of, of uh, culture and science. And I kind of inter- interweaved Game of Thrones with uh, some science here and asking the question, what could possibly explain Game of Thrones' messed up seasons? Earthlings take for granted that the seasons will change on schedule. Our planet's clockwork-like seasonality allows us to predict the passage of time with complete precision. We can always be sure that spring is just around the corner, but the same cannot be said, however, for the unlucky inhabitants of George R.R. Martin's Westeros. Now why is this? And what are the possible scientific explanations 
for Westeros's long, unpredictable seasons. Now, a unique feature of Martin's Song of Ice and Fire world is its extreme seasonal variability. Summers and winters have an indeterminate length, leaving its citizens wondering how long the current season will last and how long they may have to endure the next one. At the opening of Game of Thrones Season 2, the good folk of the Seven Kingdoms learn that the summer, which has lasted nine years, is coming to a close, and with it, the onset of what could be a very long and bitter winter. Now, this makes for some pretty great fantasy, but is this actually possible? And is there any chance that variable-length seasons as portrayed in Game of Thrones could eventually happen on Earth? Well, the answer is yes, and in fact, there are at least five explanations that can help explain what's going on in the Seven Kingdoms. Now, first is a wobbly planetary tilt. Now, the Earth's seasons are caused by the tilt of the axis of rotation. It's a 23.4 degree offset of the axis, to be exact. The direction of the Earth's rotational axis stays nearly fixed in space, despite the fact that we're also revolving around the Sun. As a result, depending on the Earth's location during its orbit, the northern hemisphere is tilted toward the Sun, causing us to experience summer. Half a year later, when the Earth is on the opposite side of the Sun, and the northern hemisphere is tilted away from the Sun, resulting in, yes, you guessed it, winter. The seasons are, of course, reversed for the southern hemisphere. The seasons themselves are the result of shifting daylight exposures. In temperate and polar regions, the seasons are marked by changes in the intensity of sunlight that reaches the Earth's surface. So the less sunlight you have, the colder it is. Makes sense. It's important to note, though, that the Earth's axis of rotation is extremely stable. Now, if it wasn't, the Earth's tilt would be very wobbly, resulting in inconsistent and unpredictable seasonal lengths, just like the ones portrayed in Game of Thrones. But thankfully, we have the moon. Or, more specifically, we have a very large moon. The Earth's moon is disproportionately large compared to other planetary satellites in the solar system, and without it, there might not be any seasons, or the seasons could be very different than what we're used to. The moon has the effect of stabilizing the tilt of the Earth's rotational axis, and without it, Earth would be a wobbly mess. Now, back to Game of Thrones. In the episode The King's Road, we learn that Westeros has at least one moon. It's very possible, therefore, that they have a very small or distant moon that is causing a variable tilt in their planet's rotational axis. It's interesting to note that, according to legend, Westeros used to have two moons, but one wandered too close to the sun and it cracked from the heat, pouring out a thousand thousand dragons. Well, dragons aside, it's conceivable that some kind of cataclysmic celestial event could have wiped out their second moon, which would have thrown their planet's rotational axis out of whack. So as for our situation here on Earth, we're not completely immune from this problem. If our moon got knocked out of its current orbit, say by a massive object or a nuclear explosion, we would be in quite a bit of trouble. So the second potential um, explanation here is that the planet has an extremely elongated orbit. It's a commonly held myth that the Earth's seasons are caused by its changing proximity to the sun. And this makes sense from an intuitive perspective. The Earth is in an elliptical orbit around the Sun, which would indicate that the further it is away from the Sun, the colder it would be. Hence, Earth's location at the aphelion point, which is the farthest point from the Sun, would indicate winter. But this is not the case. Earth may be in an elliptical orbit, but it's practically a circle. Our distance from the Sun at the aphelion point has virtually no impact on the Earth's climate, though some experts believe that it may account for the southern hemisphere's moderate winters. Now that said, not all planets have a near circular orbit like the Earth's. Mercury, for example, has the lar- largest orbital ex- 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 um, it has the largest orbital 
eccentricity of any planet in the solar system at 0.2056, which compares to the Earth's, which is 0.0167. So the closer you are to zero, uh, the closer the orbit is to being circular. So let's say Game of Thrones, and it's very possible that Westeros has a very eccentric or elongated orbit. Unlike the Earth, their world would be extremely far from its sun at the aphelion point, which would explain the long and severe winters. Conversely, during perihelion, the planet would have a prolonged summer. Our very own Mars experiences this kind of thing. It undergoes wide temperature variations and violent dust storms every year when it reaches perihelion. The problem with this theory, however, is it doesn't explain the unpredictability of the seasons. The citizens of the Seven Kingdoms would still experience consistent yearly cycles and fixed-length seasons, even if they would be longer than what we're used to here on Earth. So this theory, at least on its own, is not a very good explanation. Now, reason number three is that it may have a complex Milankovitch cycle. Now, the Earth is subject to some significantly longer orbital and axial trends. Variations in orbital eccentricity, axial tilt, and precession of the Earth's orbit can determine climactic patterns that can take tens of thousands of years to play out. It takes about 26,000 years for Earth's axis to complete one full cycle of precession, and that's the change in the orientation of the rotational axis of a rotating body. While at the same time, the Earth is orbiting at a variable speed. So the combined effect of these two phenomena creates a 21,000-year astronomical season, and this is what is referred to as a Milankovitch cycle. This extreme long-term seasonality slowly changes the climate on Earth, typically resulting in colder winters in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's thought that Milankovitch cycles are what's to blame for Earth's past ice ages. And anthropic general Anthropic global warming notwithstanding, current models suggest that the current warm climate may last another 50,000 years. All planets have their own Milankovitch cycle, which affect the weather and seasons in unique ways. Take Mars's polar caps. They vary in size on account of orbital instability related to a latent Milankovitch cycle. And Saturn's moon Titan has a 60,000-year cycle that changes the location of its methane lakes. So looking at the situation in Game of Thrones, it's possible that Westeros's Milankovitch cycle is quick and complex. If this is the case, the seasons would be subject to variation in both length and severity, exactly the sort of thing that is seen in the series. Such long-term trends could be predicted when analyzing the physics of it, but it's nothing that planets and medieval stage observers could measure or anticipate. Number four, oceans, currents, and winds. So any given region's climate is profoundly influenced by such factors as its latitude and proximity to large bodies of water. Take the South Pole, for example. It's in the middle of Antarctica and a considerable distance from the moderating influence of the Southern Oceans. The North Pole, on the other hand, is in the Arctic Ocean and its temperature extremes are buffered by the water. The result is that the South Pole is consistently colder during the Southern winter compared to the North Pole during the Northern winter. Ocean currents and prevailing winds can also have an impact on climate, and they themselves are subject to cyclical variations. Currents like El Niño and La Niña impact on regional climates across timescales as long as five or more years. And the power of Canada's warm Chinook winds are largely unpredictable, but their impact on the prairies is significant. The Seven Kingdoms may be subject to these sorts of long-term weather trends. The geography of their world may be considerably different than Earth's. Westeros may contain larger oceans, bigger mountains, stronger currents, and more powerful prevailing winds, all of which would combine to create fairly unpredictable and long-term weather trends. And it's worth noting that global warming and rising ocean levels on Earth are stunting the ocean currents, and some experts believe that this could indeed result in a new ice age. And the fifth uh, answer, the fifth uh, factor is kind of a catch-all, and that it's a combination of all factors. It's also possible that it's through a combination of some or all of these factors that Game of Thrones' seasonal variability can be explained. As shown, seasonality and climate are clearly the result of many factors. 
Regardless, however, it's time to bundle up. Winter might be coming. relationship is on the rocks. Begrudgingly, you and your significant other visit a marriage counselor in the hopes that there's still something left to salvage in your relationship. You both spill your guts and admit that the love is gone. The counselor listens attentively, nodding her head every now and then in complete understanding. At the end of the session, she offers the two of you some practical words of advice and sees you on your way. Oh, but before you leave, she fills out a prescription for the two of you. Your marriage, it would seem, has been placed on meds. Now, as messed up as this scenario might seem, this could very well be the future of marriage counseling. At least that's what Oxford neuroethicists Julian Savulescu and Anders Sandberg believe. In their paper, Neuroenhancement of Love and Marriage, The Chemicals Between Us, they argue that such a possibility awaits us in the not-too-distant future, and that a kind of love potion could eventually be developed to strengthen pair bonding. In fact, most of the compounds required to make such a concoction are already within our grasp. It's just a matter of doing it. There's no secret that divorce rates are going up, Most people would agree that the end of a relationship is a tragic and undesirable thing. Modern couples tend to break up between the five to nine year mark, a time when the initial honeymoon phase is long gone and the hard realities of managing a long-term relationship really start to kick in. And while economic and social factors can often play a part in the disintegration of a marriage, neuroscience is increasingly showing that love is in the brain. Human sexuality is a complicated thing, the result of an evolutionary psychology that is heavily influenced by our pernicious, selfish genes. No matter how hard we try, our feelings from our, for our partners change over time, and more often than not, it's not for the better. Now, marriage therapy does help, but it often comes too late. And studies have shown, for example, that female desire for sexual intimacy decreases as a relationship continues, where males, on the other hand, don't tend to lose their sexual desire, but they gradually lose the need for tenderness from their partner. But now, owing to our growing understanding of the brain, we may be able to do something about it. 
pair bonding and love, it would seem, could use a helping hand, and that helping hand could come in the form of a pill. Psychopharmaceuticals may eventually be used to restore and even enhance feelings of love. Medication during a marriage could help a couple maintain a sense of closeness and attachment. The honeymoon phase, it would seem, could be prolonged indefinitely. Pair bonding is a multifaceted process, a complex mixture of lust, attraction, and attachment. Neuroimaging studies of romantic love, for example, have shown activations in regions of the brain that are linked to the oxytocin and vasopressin systems and also reward systems. In addition, brain scans bear witness to the systematic deactivation of regions linked with negative effect, social judgment, and the assessment of other people's emotions and intentions. Neuroscientists have discovered that long-term attachment is also tied to oxytocin and vasopressin, as well as neoadrenaline, which is responsible for strong learning. So based on these and other findings, Savalescu and Sandberg propose five different methods to restore love through the use of pharmacological interventions, or what they call the modulators of love. So the first one are pheromones. Our bodies release odor chemicals called pheromones in the hopes of triggering behavioral responses in those around us, particularly those hotties who we're attracted to. From an evolutionary perspective, this was important for indicating sexual availability. It's a rather untargeted and blunt approach, but Savalescu and Sandberg speculate that we may eventually be able to tailor immune-related smells to strengthen ties between people. Another factor here is testosterone, and the administration of testosterone has been shown to increase sexual desire in both men and women. People on testosterone report an increase in sexual thoughts, activity, and satisfaction, but they do not report increased romantic passion or increased attachment to partners. Oxytocin and vasopressin, another two. They are the dynamic duo of pair bonding substances. Oxytocin and vasopressin are pro-social hormones that are released during bodily contact. So even if you, if you hug somebody, uh, the, that simple act of hugging them will release oxytocin in both yours and their brains. By supplementing with oxytocin, it is hoped that pro-social behaviors like trust and openness might reduce negative feedback in some relationships while strengthening the positive ones. Then there's CRH. Love, as we can all attest, is also very much linked to a fear of separation and sadness. Um, this is kind of like the stick rather than the carrot in the maintenance of the pair bond. There's some evidence that these feelings may be due to the hormone hormone CRH, which stands for corticoceptin releasing hormone. It has been suggested that by upregulating the CRH receptor, it might promote partner attachment. Unfortunately, however, it may also cause depression and anxiety, which is clearly not good. And lastly, there are what are called enactogens, and enactogen drugs are things like MDMA, also known as ecstasy. They are known to increase sociability and an experience of connection with other people. It creates a feeling of emotional openness and a reduction in anxiety. MDMA does not appear to act as an aphrodisiac, but it does promote a desire for emotional closeness. This is likely due to the release of oxytocin. MDMA has been used therapeutically to foster emotional communication skills, so it's not implausible that it or similar drugs could be used to deepen pair bonding. The primary hurdle, however, will be in somehow overcoming MDMA's neurotoxic effects. So, if your marriage is in jeopardy, you might just want to grin and bear it and try to hang on for a few more years. It may only be a matter of time before science finally creates that elusive love potion number nine. Hey, no ins and outs! You come out, your shit is gone. Bitch. Going back to Tangier with some guns and a spear. Post Christy shit, post chicken of the egg and dicks and shit. Pass the sharp stick, be a reality. Bit of freak you wanna see, just 
Nature went ahead and published that study. After months of controversy, the journal Nature has published the details of an experiment describing how the avian flu can be modified into a human contagious form. We've talked about this previously on previous podcasts, um, but now it's actually finally happened. The publication, obviously, it's prompted critics to warn of a possible human disaster should the details of the study get in the wrong hands or the mutant virus accidentally escape the lab. It's an incident that highlights growing concerns about unchecked scientific inquiry, the mounting potential for academic censorship, and the ongoing development of increasingly powerful and dangerous biotechnologies. So here are the details of the research. It was conducted by Yoshihiro Kawoka and his team at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and they were working to determine the likelihood that the H5N1 influenza virus could be naturally mutating on its own in the wild. And their findings were alarming. The research team discovered that the virus was as little as one mutational step away from being able to spread effectively between other animals through airborne transmission. The virus is highly pathogenic and often lethal in humans, but in its current incarnation, it cannot spread efficiently between people. So to determine the possibility of increased human transmissibility, Kawoka created a hybrid virus by manipulating H5N1's hemagglutin gene, which produces the protein that the virus uses to stick itself to host cells. His team then exposed this updated virus to ferrets in separate cages to see if it could spread, which it did after just four mutations. Now, this is of particular concern because some Middle Eastern strains of H5N1 are already recognizing human receptors. This finding suggests that a more devastating version of the virus, one that could affect humans, could be as little as one stabilizing mutation away. And in evolutionary terms, that is not a lot. I mean, there are co- every time there, there's replication, there are copying errors. And it's not outrageous to suggest that one of these co- one of these times that there's a copying error, it will be that exact mutation that these scientists deliberately created in the lab. Now, supporters of Kawoka's work claim that this information is crucial for a number of reasons, including preemptive awareness and, most importantly, by offering a blueprint to help create countermeasures should a mutation actually happen in the future. It also points to the importance of ongoing research in these areas to prevent the onset of other viruses, including such pathogens as SARS. As virologist Jamie Ferrer noted in a Nature article about that announcement, the, the he says, quote, this work reminds us just how vulnerable we potentially are to relatively small changes, end quote. It's for this reason that Farrar and a number of other scientists support the work and the ongoing freedom the scientists have to pursue seemingly dangerous work. 
And on this note, I will tend to actually agree because had they not done this work, um, we would not have known how easily it is for this virus to now mutate in its natural state into something much more dangerous. It, it, it's awareness, you know, is the first step toward prevention in this sense. But not all agree. Uh, writing in an ed- editorial in the journal Science last January, virologist Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota claimed that, quote, the desire to disseminate the entirety of the methods and results of the two H5N1 studies in the general scientific literature will not materially increase our ability to protect the public's health from future H5N1 pandemic. And other scientists were that bioterrorists, bioterrorists could use the information to weaponize the disease. And others simply fear that an accident could happen in which the virus gets away from researchers and infects the general population. And according to a report in Wired magazine, many prominent virologists are afraid to criticize the findings publicly for fear of retribution from such groups as the National Institutes of Health and other funders. It's quite possible, therefore, that many concerned scientists are keeping a tight lip on the matter for fear of a backlash and an end to their funding. So with the, the Nature publication, um, the genie is officially out of the bottle. The future is unclear, both in terms of the benefits and the threats that such open knowledge may bring. Moreover, when considering the temporary moratorium on similar research that was put into place several months ago, it's clear that this issue is far from settled. <clears throat> One last note before we go to break on this particular issue. The more I think about it, the more I do believe I am in support of this. Uh, I think oftentimes that it's... Um, it's when you have, you know, you're engaging in science and you're you're expanding on your data sets and what you know that um, it's through that kind of knowledge that we can work to fix things. And while I completely recognize the risks that this now poses in terms of the, you know, the bioterror threat or what have you, or even that things like this can escape from the lab, I do believe that in the right hands and that this should be very carefully regulated and monitored and all these only these the labs, very specific sets of labs should be allowed to work on this stuff and with a certain amount of oversight, that now that we know that we have this information, now that we know that what this virus is capable of doing, we can now get to work, roll up our sleeves and try to figure out how exactly can we work to uh, immunize ourselves or create a vaccine or something, basically even reverse engineer the virus a little bit, learn what it is that the virus does and how it does it, and try to find a way to prevent it from doing its work. So scary, I do realize that, but at the same time, I do think that uh, this is probably the best way to move forward on trying to prevent uh, a virus like this from getting out into the general population. And who knows, maybe we'll look back on this at some point and say this was kind of like the, the, the first step in the next generation of our approach to preventing pandemics from happening. Hopefully that's going to be the case. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, a couple of articles left to go over. Going to talk about artificial retinas and the search for life on Jupiter's icy moons.
So two British men who were completely blind for years have regained some of their vision after undergoing surgery to fit eye implants, and that's uh, um, according to an article I caught at in this in the BBC. So this pioneering treatment it's at an early stage of development, but it marks an important step forward in an effort to help those who have lost their sight from a condition known as retinitis pigmentosa. The breakthrough was part of a clinical trial carried out at the Oxford Eye Hospital and King's College Hospital in London by Robert McLaren and Tim Jackson. So their work focused on a previously untreatable condition known as retinitis pigmentosa, or RP. It's a type of inherited progressive retinal dystrophy in which abnormalities of the photoreceptors, those are your rods and cones, um, or the retinal pigment epithelium of the retina, lead to progressive visual loss. The condition happens when the photoreceptor cells at the back of the eye gradually cease to function. Now, while the procedure did not restore complete vision to the patients, it did restore their ability to perceive light and even some shapes. That's no small thing, for the, particularly for the visually impaired, because even that, given when you can kind of sense, sense where light is coming in into your environment, and even where some shapes might be, that can be a tremendous help to an individual who's trying to navigate through their environment. So to make this happen, McLaren and Jackson, they developed a microchip, and they could fit it behind the retina. It's wafer-thin, about 3 millimeters square chip, and it's got 1,500 light-sensitive pixels, which take over the function of the failed photoreceptor rods and cones. So if you look at it in a certain way, you can see it as a kind of transplant in which the original function has been replaced by an artificial device. So it is a kind of an artificial retina. Once implanted behind the retina, a fine cable runs to a control unit under the skin behind the user's ear. Now, the pixel on the chips are stimulated when light enters the eye, and in turn, it sends a signal to the optic nerve and from there to the brain. The end result is the perception of light. The patient can alter sensitivity by using a power unit which connects to the chip via a magnetic disc on the scalp. So after the surgery was complete, the patients were able to stand in a room and perceive light coming through windows. They were also capable of making out a curve or a straight line when close up. And in an unexpected development, one patient claims that the implant has given him the ability to dream in color for the first time in 25 years, which is pretty damn fascinating if you think about it because it would appear that uh, the integrity of our optic uh, nerves and and the integrity of our eyes actually has a bearing on our ability to perceive images in our dreams. How mind-blowing is that? McLaren and Jackson stress that the chip is not a treatment, but part of a clinical trial. The next phase will see up to a dozen British patients fitted with the implants. So that is really amazing. And that's cyborgs today, cybernetics today. Again, as is so often the case, it is through our ability to help um, those who are disabled or who have some kind of deficiency to kind of um, fix them up a little bit that we're developing some of our most extreme and uh, uh, not extreme, but some of our most powerful and innovative technologies. So I can only imagine what the second generation and third generation of this will be like in terms of creating a kind of artificial vision or even restoring vision entirely. Outstanding. Now, to f- conclude this week's episode, 
just wanted to mention something about what the European Space Space Agency is doing. You know, while NASA kind of sleeps here, oh, I shouldn't say that because I remember last podcast I, I commented about how NASA is planning on uh, the next generation of uh, uh, ventures out to Mars. Well, uh, while NASA is concerned with Mars, and while you have um, uh, Peter Diamandis and James Cameron and crew worrying about mining asteroids, well, it would appear that the European Sta- Space Agency wants to go to Jupiter. Now, they're asking a question, you know, could there be life on one of Jupiter's moons? And the European Space Agency is hoping to find out. So to that end, the ESA, they're going to send the JUICE space probe to Jupiter to study three of its moons, Europa, Callisto, and Ganymede. A key objective of the mission is to study the potential for life. And because these three moons have internal liquid water oceans, they are considered, well, juicy targets. In addition, JUICE, which stands for Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer, will study Jupiter's atmosphere and magnetosphere and the interaction of the Galilean moons with the gas giant. The ESA is hoping to launch the probe in 2022 on an Ariane 5 carrier rocket with arrival at the Jovian system scheduled for 2030. By 2033, JUICE should enter into orbit around Ganymede once it completes various maneuvers around Jupiter and the other moons. The newly announced mission is a reformulation of the Jupiter-Ganymede orbital proposal, which was to be ESA's component of the former Europa-Jupiter system mission Laplace. It's also a candidate to become the first L-class mission, which is a collaborative program of the ESA's Cosmic Vision Program, and that's their long-term strategy for the period 2015 to 2025. So nice to see some long-term planning here, both at the ESA and at NASA. So JUICE, it'll go, it'll head out there to Jupiter, and it's going to perform a detailed investigation of Ganymede as a planetary body and evaluate its potential to support life. So it's going to fly by around Europa and Callisto, and it'll be part of a comparative analysis of those moons. And it has a number of goals. So um, particularly for the Ganymede and Callisto missions, those goals are to scan the ocean layers and detect subsurface water reservoirs. There's going to be topographical, geographical, and composition, compositional mapping of the surface, studying the physical properties of the icy crusts, analyzing the internal mass distribution, dynamics, and evolution of the interiors. They're going to investigate the exosphere, and they're going to study Ganymede's intrinsic magnetic field and its interactions with the Jovian magnetosphere. As for Europa, JUICE's focus will be on scanning for the chemistry essential to life, including organic molecules, and in understanding the formation of surface features and the composition of the non-water ice material. It is also hoped that JUICE will provide the first subsurface sounding of the moon, including the first determination of the minimal thickness of the icy crust over the most recently active regions. So there you have it. Very cool. I wish them the best of luck, and I'm looking forward to the year 2033 when we can start to receive the the results and the data from this particular probe. And that is that for this week's episode. It was good to be back. Also good to have a, a break. And uh, although it wasn't much of a break, but at least it's, it's kind of a switching of gears. I hope all of you um, had a good um, last three weeks or so. And uh, again, I make no promises in terms of what I can do in terms of the regular production of this podcast. My goal, as always, is to put out one a week, but uh, sometimes work and life does interfere. I just ask for your ongoing patience and understanding and just know that even in, even in the worst case scenario, I'll I'll get podcasts out maybe once a month or once every six weeks. It doesn't matter. I, I don't plan on giving this up anytime soon, and uh, it's going to be kind of just yeah, do it as you can do it. But like I said, once a week is still my goal. 
As always, you're welcome to get in touch with me if you have any questions or comments about the podcast or things you would like me to talk about. I'd love to hear your suggestions. Um, best way to reach me is george at sentientdevelopments.com. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Dvorsky. And um, that let's end the show on that note and have yourselves a wonderful week. See you in about a week's time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye.